Well, it's good to be uh, with everyone. We're on uh, page five of the bulletin. If you're new here, this is uh, the, the, the sermon message time. Um, my name is Joseph Bianco, assistant pastor at City Reform. I want to welcome you, especially if you're new. There is a, also on the back of this bulletin a visitor's card, and, and that's a way that we can get to know you. You can drop it in the offering box. Um, and we will send you an email. Nauman, uh, an assistant pastor of the church, will contact you uh, and find out any ways that you would like to get con- connected or know more about the church. So I want to uh, welcome you in the name of Christ. Uh, we've been preaching through First Peter, the epistle of First Peter. And you could say that uh, we're in a, like a sub-series of the series of First Peter right now. Um, and we might title that, or I did title it, Living as People Who Are Free. Last week we talked about, John talked about uh, the institution and governments. This week we're going to talk about servants and masters. And then next week we're going to talk about wives and husbands, all under this category of living as people who are free in Christ. Um, So let me read the word, and as always our response will be, thanks be to God. So hear the word of the Lord from 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Servants. Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called... Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray and ask God that he would direct uh, the preaching of this word. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do ask now that this word that we read uh, would be pushed deep inside of us. Father, that it would not just remain here in this room, but that it would remain with us until we come back here to hear another word of yours again. Father, that we would cherish this word, that we would, Father, learn to love and to meditate and to dwell, Father, in Scripture. Father, I pray that you would uh, bless my preaching, that it would be, Father, glorifying to you, that it would be of this text, that it would push us, Father, where your spirit needs to push us. And that would, God, Father, give us comfort where your spirit causes us to have comfort. Father, I pray that you would even work in my mistakes, even in spite of my sin, to your glory. We pray it in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, one of the most notable uh, changes that I experienced when I became a Christian uh, was actually a deep change in my anger. I became a Christian as a, as a young boy. I'm one of three boys. Uh, And boys can get very angry. Uh, Girls can get angry too. But when boys get angry, at least I experienced this in my family, we tend to break things. Um, 
And I remember my dad bought a punching bag uh, for our basement because at least then we could direct that anger towards something somewhat constructive rather than the house. Um, but as a child, and when I came to faith in Christ, a lot of that rage released. It left me. And I remember it. I remember the rage that I used to feel before I believed. And it's not like I never uh, feel angry anymore, but the, the weight and the depth of that truly, truly left, significantly decreased. I remember wrestling with a new orientation towards my parents without this rage that I felt. I'd wrestle with questions like, how do, how do I honor my parents who are not Christians? How do I keep the fifth commandment? How do, I, how do I honor someone who doesn't honor God? How do I submit to them? Do they deserve for me to submit to them if they're not believers? These are questions I would ask. My mom's Jewish and my dad's Catholic. And as a child, I just read the fifth commandment and I rested in it. I said, okay, Lord, you say submit to your father and your mother. So I, I did. Are you, you say to honor them. And it was messy. I did not honor them well, but I tried. Um, and as I reflect back on it, the core of that ability came from that changed heart that I had in Christ. I saw in Jesus a peaceful man who took my sin, and in that sin laid my anger. Uh, but what let me submit to my parents was the example that Christ gave me. Um, that Jesus was before me, uh, having had laid down his life for me when we hated him. In this passage, Peter takes this illustration further, far further. Not just a parent, but a master who is beating a servant unjustly. Now, could this be a parent? I think it could be many authority figures, sure. Many children have suffered unjustly under the hands of abusive parents, uh, my parents uh, were not believers, but they were by no means abusive. They were kind, generous. They are kind, generous, loving people. Um, but I know that there are people here who have suffered under the abuse of unjust parents. But here Peter gives us the image of a, of a master and a servant. And he calls us to submit not only to the good and gentle, but also, the text says, to the unjust. He goes on to say this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Uh, those who have been under unjust oppression will struggle here in this text. Is God saying that I should allow someone to abuse me? I might walk out of the room right now. Is God saying that he gets pleasure from my suffering? I might walk out of the room right now. The short answer, so you don't walk out of the room, is no. That is not what God is saying. He is, uh, he is saying um, something that is very hard, but he is not saying that you should um, just remain in an abusive situation uh, or that he gets pleasure from our pain. Um, but what I do think we are tempted to believe are lies like that about God. To believe that when suffering unjustly that God has forgotten us or that he's not really a good God. But Peter sets Jesus before us as an example, reminding us 
that Jesus suffered because of our sin. This whole section is characterized by this last uh, passage that John read last week in verse 16 that says, Live as people who are free. In God, Christ has set you free. And that freedom enables you to endure unjust suffering, patterning our lives after Jesus. And God says this is a gracious thing. So for all of you skeptics in the room today, I want to ask the question throughout the sermon, how is this a gracious thing? How exactly is this grace? And Peter outlines three ways. Uh, First, it is grace to the master. Second, it is grace to us. And thirdly, it reminds us of the grace already given in Christ. So it's grace to the master, grace to us, and grace already given. So let's look at the master first. Verse 18, a servants be subject. Now, that word uh, subject, hippotasso in, in the Greek, can be translated be subject to, but a synonym of the gloss is submit. It's the same word that's used in Ephesians talking about wives and husbands. Um, the term is essentially the same, be subject to your masters or submit to your masters with all respect, not only to the good, but also to the unjust. So first, let's answer the question, is this masochism? Is that what Paul is suggest, or, uh, Peter is suggesting? Is God saying, if you have a bad employer, make sure that he, you stay there so that he can abuse you, and this is a gracious thing in the sight of God? Absolutely not. That is not what God is saying. The context here is a servant and a master, meaning that this servant at that time in history did not have the freedom to choose. You see, these were indentured servants, uh, far better than what we think of when we think of 18th century slaves, um, but still not free. They could buy their freedom later after a period of time, but I want you to think more in the category of like a live-in nanny who could later buy her freedom. Um, They're stuck where they are. So Peter is speaking to a particular context People stuck in jobs with bad masters and they cannot escape. Now many of you might be stuck in jobs with evil, bad, or abusive employers. And you, unlike these servants, do or may have the option of leaving your job. But many of you, because of finances or stage of life or um, job openings, you do not have the option to leave your job. And you are stuck where you are, and this passage applies to you. Also, the reality is many of us have bosses that are at times good and gentle, and both also at times unjust. So this word would apply to us also. And what Peter says is it's not masochism, but it is freedom to choose submission under unjust oppression in order to actually love our masters. And look, before you ask the question, well, what kind of oppression? How much oppression? Peter actually answers it here. He says, verse 20, what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it? He says, beaten. Peter is saying that even if physically beaten, believers in Jesus Christ are called to submission. Now again, I don't want you to hear what Peter isn't saying. These servants have no choice. You may have a choice. 
So it may be most wise for you to leave your job. I don't know. That's something that you can get together with me or any pastor in this church or elder and we can sit and talk about it. But if you're in a situation where you're treated unjustly and you can't leave, the text says, verse 20 at the end, that your submission is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So if it's not masochism, is it schadenfreude? Well, let's look at that. Is it schadenfreude? So do you know what schadenfreude means? Um, I was a German major, and in German we pronounce it schadenfreude, and I have no idea if in English you pronounce it which way, one or the other. But the, the, the word means schaden is pain and freude is joy. It means taking pleasure from someone or joy from someone else's pain. Um, so the question is, is God up there taking pleasure from your suffering? Is it schadenfreude? Is that what it means that it's a gracious thing? Again, absolutely not. Then how is it grace? What is gracious about it? The first thing Peter confronts our hearts with, as I said, is that it is grace to the master. Grace to the boss man. Peter is saying that we are to show grace to people who hurt us in order that we may love them. And there is only one type of person in this world who can do that. And that is someone who has known the radical grace of Jesus Christ. So how do we win the hearts of people who hurt us? Not through fighting, not through confrontational Facebook messages or hurling insults or holding grudges. Let me ask you a question. How did Jesus win your heart? Christ won our hearts by leaving us an example of submission when we were the abusers. So this is how God has chosen for you to treat your unjust masters. We must learn to love the way Jesus loved. And we will look very different than the way the world will react. So fourth, submitting to a master does not mean doing nothing. It does not mean doing nothing. When I think of the word submit, I think of uh, this old beagle we used to have in my parents' house. Uh, her name was Katie. And she was very fat and very cute. And uh, when you would just walk up to her, She'd roll back on her back, tongue out, paws up, and just full submission. That's what I think of when I think of submission, um, but in reality, that's not submission. That's surrender. <laughs> Hear this. Submission is not surrender. There is one person in your life that you surrender to, and that is your Lord and your Savior. And that is it. Jesus is the picture, though, of submission. If we look at his life, what it looked like to submit, Jesus talked, he walked, he acted, he engaged, and at times he was silent. Verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Submission can be many things, and it can be silence. Not always, but it can be. I'll tell you a story. I, I had a job um, for two summers when I was in college working highway maintenance with PennDOT. Um, and highway maintenance working is what you think it is. We pour roads, we fix potholes, we clear debris and garbage by the side of the road. And uh, the first day I, I worked this job, I worked with this guy named Bob. And Bob um, was a rough looking man. He had a handlebar mustache, 
wore green army clothes, looked like he had just come out of Vietnam. Um, so I'm picking up trash with Bob, and he says to get in the, in the truck. So I get in the truck, and I turn to my left, and he has a knife stuck like an inch from my nose, in my face. And I'm thinking, at this moment, I try to play this cool, but I'm thinking, this man is going to kill me. And we are alone on the side of the road. And it turned out that this was Bob's idea of a joke. This is, this is my first day of work. So I spent two summers with men equally as rough as Bob, and these men were self-proclaimed alcoholics, wife beaters, licentious, vulgar, very, very vulgar, um, promiscuous, and and there I was, a Christian. Uh, Most of the time I spent, I was silent. There was just no entry point at this job. They would try to get me to catcall women on the side of the road as we drove by, and I was silent. To curse, and I was silent. To undermine our boss, and I was silent. And I paid for it at this job. And a lot of these guys hated me, but the funny thing was that Bob grew on me, of all the people. And I grew on Bob, and he could see that I was different, and he began to, on his own, talk to me about his marriage. He knew that I wanted to be a pastor. Um, about his kids, about his losses, about his hopes and his dreams. And one day he talked to me even about Vietnam. He was actually in Vietnam. And he talked about the deep pain and the hurt there. And then another day he actually invited me to his home and to, uh, to share some, uh, some, uh, one of his hobbies, motorcycles, with me. And the man who I first met who stuck a knife in my face gave me the opportunity to share Christ with him. So sometimes the best thing, really the only thing we can do, is to remain silent. It's not compromising, but it's silent. And the Lord saw fit to bless my relationship with Bob, and that's an example of what it looks like, that it's a gracious thing in the sight of God. Do you believe that God can and will work through your submission? Do you believe that your boss may see Christ in you through your obedient action? Do you believe that God may open up doors through your patient suffering? This is a picture of the gospel, and this is how God has chosen to work. Not through the mighty, but through the meek. So it is grace to our master, but I want you to see that it is also grace to you. This is my second point. Verse 21, for, this, uh, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. For to this you have been called. To what? If we could take those steps and we could call them a path, we might name that path what in your life? Might we name that path the path of comfort? Might we name that path a path of wealth or prosperity? How about the path of glory, my glory in success? I believe Peter would name it the path of suffering. To this you have been called to a path, to a pattern of suffering the way Christ suffered. Now, again, to you skeptics in the room who have opinions about what you think Christianity is, 
I want to ask you, what do you think of this? That the, the path of the Christian is one pattern after the suffering of Christ. So look, there's America's version of Christianity, and then there's the, what the Bible says about what Christianity is. And if you're a skeptic in the room, I want you to see what the Bible says about what Christianity is. It's following in the suffering of Christ. So why, you might be thinking, why would you ever be a Christian? If Christianity isn't primarily about my happiness, my comfort, my blessing, why be a Christian? The answer is is because we believe it is objectively true. We believe that in history, Jesus really did die for our sins. He really was raised on the third day for our forgiveness and that we really will, because of his redemptive work, dwell with him for an eternity. We believe that that really happened in history. Why suffer if it's not true? It's far more than an idea. If Jesus really did those things, if he really rose from the dead to give us eternal life, then we must follow in his steps. Now Christians, this calling to suffer isn't just grace to the master, but I've told you this is grace to you. To the believer. It's a means by which God uses for our sanctification to make us more like Jesus. There is something so fundamental about the nature of suffering unjustly that I believe it turns our hearts to deep dependence and faith in Christ. And that is what he cares about, your faith. As we learn to love people who hurt us, God is working to show us just how free we are in Christ. He's working in our own hearts to make us more like we were created to be, more into the image of God, more like Jesus. Where in your life are you suffering unjustly, Christian? Where in your life are you suffering unjustly? Maybe it's like this passage. Maybe it's at a workplace. You have a tough, unreasonable, maybe ignorant, rude boss. What does it look like, verse 19, when mindful of God to seek to show your boss grace? Maybe it's in a marriage. What might it look like to show grace to your spouse when he or she is unjustly hurting you? And I struggle with this one here. I have an amazing wife. But if if I feel like my wife wrongs me, grace is not the first thing in my mind And in fact, I believe that the people we are often closest to are the ones we struggle most to show this kind of grace with. What might it look like to show gracious submission to an unjust spouse? What about a government? I'm not going to cover this one because you can go back and listen to John's sermon, but it's related to this passage. What about a family? What if you're a child of an unjust parent? So there's an amazing story that I read in relationship to this sermon about a South Korean pastor during the uh, Korean War whose two sons were killed um, by a North Korean. So the pastor lost both of his sons. Uh, Later, that North Korean was captured, and he was sentenced to death. And the, the pastor heard of it, and he intervened, and he said, Stop, I dropped the charges. Do not kill that man. But the South Korean pastor actually didn't stop there. He went even further. He went on to adopt that North Korean man who murdered his sons. 
Later, that North Korean man adopted into his family would come to know Christ as a Savior. That is a radical way to love. And it is only through the freedom that we have in Jesus that we can love like that. You have to experience this kind of love first. You have to know what it feels like to be shown that kind of grace if you have any chance of showing that kind of grace to someone else. It is a gracious thing, the text says, because God is teaching us to radically love people. He's teaching us that you are more free than you realize. You are free from the opinions of man. Do you believe that? You are free from the pressures of society. You are free from the need to please people. But you are freed in order that you may show grace like Jesus showed to you. Now, I've given us two reasons why this is grace to us, but this last reason is because it reminds us of what I said, of the grace already given. Now, verse 24 is both a a great reminder uh, to believers and a great call to skeptics. Verse 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And there's a, a reference there to Isaiah. Peter's making an amazing literary connection here. I want you to see it in the text. If you look at verse 20, you remember that Peter said, what credit is it to you if you endure beatings, but if you, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And then here in verse 24, he says what? He says, by his wounds, you have been healed. So he's making this, this, he's drawing these images together. One of us being beaten by a master, but then the second of us beating Christ. In one swift stroke of the pen, Peter cuts our hearts. He cuts my heart. He reminds me that every sin that I have committed was a blow to Jesus on the cross. Every sin that you have committed now and in history and in time to come was a lash on Jesus' back. But this text says that he bore this in his body. So I used to think about this as a child. You know, other people have, you're a little boy and you're interested in torture. So you read about these things. Um, But I, I really, I used to think about this. Jesus' crucifixion wasn't the worst someone was ever tortured in the history of the world. I mean, there are worse forms. It was real bad, don't get me wrong, but there are worse forms of torture. So what made Jesus' suffering wider and deeper than any other man in history? It was that every sin of every person of all time was laid on him. That Jesus took the sin of all those who had believed, will believe, or do believe in him, in his body, on the tree. I remember this hitting me as a child, that it wasn't the crucifixion itself, it was what the crucifixion pointed to. That the weight of the sin of billions of people, mine included, Jesus bore on the cross. And that is why Paul, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, can say that he became sin 
who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Peter says a similar thing here in verse 24. He says that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus didn't just take your sin, he gave you his righteousness. Everything good that you are is the goodness of Christ in you. Jesus silently, patiently endured our sin, unjustly put on him, and the whip was in my hand, and the spear was in your hand. If you're a skeptic in the room, do you believe that you have sin? Have you done things that you're ashamed of? Have you acted in ways that you have long hidden away in a closet? Do you have people that maybe you've hurt, family members maybe you've cursed, regrets pushed deep down inside of you? Or maybe it's not what you did, maybe it's what was done to you. Maybe it is uh, someone you can't forgive. Maybe it's hate that you hold on to, anger that you cannot let go of. Maybe you had someone abuse you. Maybe a father or a mother, a spouse or a boss. And every day of your life is ruled by past hurts. I have great news for you. In Christ Jesus, you are set free. In Christ Jesus, you are forgiven. you put your faith in Christ, he frees you from all those hurts, and he forgives you all of your sin. You are not under the control of anyone else other than your Savior. You are free to love people, you are free to forgive people, you are free from the opinions of men and bosses and family. You're a new creation, you are a new identity, you are God's beloved child. And that's all wrapped up in the meaning of the words when Peter says, by his wounds you have been healed. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, are you living in the healing power of the gospel? Is this your identity? Or do you cling to your old identity? Verse 25 says, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Suffering unjustly is a gracious thing because it reminds us of the one who unjustly suffered. Not just for us, but because of us. As a parent, you, kinda, you get this sense of this kind of love. Parents endure a lot of suffering on the behalf of their children. Sleepless nights, many days, spent in bowed in prayer on their kids' behalf. Kicking and screaming and tantrums and hours spent saying the same word over and over again to their children. Now, don't get me wrong. You discipline your children. You teach them the right way to go. But there are plenty of times you bear their mistakes on yourself. You bear their antics. You bear their screaming and their tantrums and their protests. Why? Because you are showing your children grace. You're showing them grace. You're not treating them as they deserve. You're setting an example of what it looks like to unjustly suffer. So look, I have a two-year-old, and he's not very big, but he can pack a punch. There was one day I was was resting on the couch, and he was just next to me as, as calm as could be, and then all of a sudden, throws a temper tantrum, and in one swift kick, that foot goes up, comes right down on my nose, and it cracks. 
And for a month afterwards, I was dizzy. Now, we put him in timeout, um, but I didn't get up and kick him in the face. Now hear me, that would be just, that would be justice, right? An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But a parent would never do something like that. They don't treat you as your sins deserve. Jesus says, if you are, you, Jesus says if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your heavenly Father who loves you. In Christ, we are given a daily reminder of the suffering he endured on our behalf. Skeptics, I want you to hear that you have a Father who sees you straying like sheep. And he calls you home not to punish you, but to welcome you, to bless you, to forgive you and give you his righteousness. Christians, we will only be able to submit under unjust suffering if we look to our Heavenly Father and see the example we have in Jesus. So wherever you are in life, wherever you have been or will be, I want you to hear this. If you're suffering unjustly, remember, you're free in Christ. That freedom in Christ enables you to love your master. It is grace to you. It is a reminder of the grace given in Jesus. Let's pray.